What's wrong? I just had the most unpleasant conversation with my brother. He... He thinks that there's something going on between us. Oh. And what did you tell him? Well, I told him that that was ridiculous, that there's nothing going on between us, that you and I are just friends. Well, then that should settle that. Maybe we shouldn't see each other. Or just give people the wrong idea. Or give them the right idea. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. With me today are crew members Grace. Hey, everybody. And Jara. It's been so long since I've seen you. <laughs> A whole two weeks. And yet I still feel inextricably drawn to you. <laughs> and we are joined today by our special guest, Lisa, who writes at The Prolific Trek, theprolificTrek.wordpress.com. Hi, Lisa. Hi, guys. Do you want to give everybody an introduction to, to you and what you do and, and your relationship with Star Trek? Well, um, I grew up watching Star Trek. I uh, watched TNG growing up, and it was kind of what I would do with my dad. And so I've been a fan, basically, for as long as I can remember. And at the beginning of this year, I had the crazy idea to decide to watch all of Star Trek, even the animated series, from beginning to end in a year. And so that's what I've been doing, and that's what my blog is all about. It's the prolific Trek. So it's been going well. I'm on season five of DS9 right now and just plugging along. Awesome. And today we're going to talk about a season four episode of Deep Space Nine. But quickly before we get there, we do want to remind you about the Women at Warp Patreon. The Patreon is what allows us to do things like cover conventions and have things printed and promote the show. And if you'd like to help us out, you can do so over at patreon.com slash women at warp. And also, we have some more conventions coming up. In early October, Andy and Grace will be out at Geek Girl Con in Seattle. Yeah! And that same weekend, I will be at New York Comic Con here in the city. So if you're in town and planning to attend any of those, come say hi. And we'll get right into the episode now. We are going to be talking about Deep Space Nine Season 4 episode, Rejoined. And before we start our analysis, Jero, why don't you give us a synopsis of this one? Sure. So in this episode, a trill science team comes to Space Nine, and it's kind of a potential problem because there is a woman on it who hosts a symbiont that used to be married to one of Dax's previous hosts. And there is a trill taboo against reassociation, which is to say picking up where you left off with the someone that you had a relationship with as a previous host. Nevertheless, Jadzia and uh, the woman Lenora Khan fall in love and face a an unfortunate dilemma about whether they're going to challenge this serious tra- taboo in troll society because it's a really big deal. If you reassociate, you can be banished from the troll homeworld, which means that not only do you die when you die, but your symbiont also dies. It will never be placed in another host. So it's pretty high stakes situation. In the meantime, they're also running an experiment uh, on the Defiant to open a first 
artificial wormhole. And so that's that's the work situation that they're working together on. It, it, it's science-y, so we are assuming it's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Lisa, it was your idea to talk about this episode. Um, Want to tell us why this was top of your list? Well, I think this is such a fascinating episode as far as the questions it raises, as far as LGBTQ issues, but also just gender issues, I think, in general, because we see Jedzia still in love with or falling in love with a woman who one of her previous hosts, Tarias, had been married to, and it's a taboo, but it's a taboo in such a different way, and I think I love seeing how far the society has come that Kira just simply can't wrap her mind around the fact that if these two people are in love, then why can't they be together? And I I just think it has a lot of things that our society could look at and focus on. Yeah, definitely. I was doing a little bit of of digging into just the background for this episode for some context. Um, I mean, those of you who've listened to the show before, we talked a, a, a bit about some of the episodes. Like, I think we've talked a little bit about The Outcast. Um, Rejoined was another attempt at a show that's an allegory for societal taboos about LGBTQ equality, but in in a way that, you know, is showing, like you said, Lisa, that like no one cares about this in the 24th century, and yet the audience is confronted with this. And so initially, the idea for the script was actually a micro pillar idea that was going to bring back a former lover of Dax, the symbionts, but it was going to be a man. And then Ron Moore says he's basically driving in the car one day and he's like, you know, what would make this amazing is if we did it with a woman and that they basically had to sell it all up the chain to Rick Berman in the studio. And in the end, everyone went with this, but it was a little bit fraught, the reception. Which is incredible because TV wise, it's pretty tame. We don't, uh, the relationship, I think we only see them kiss even the once. But there are some pretty smoldering looks that pass between the two of them. Oh, yeah. It's hot stuff. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I guess before we get to to the reassociation taboo and diving into that, why not just uh, start with the, I guess, the gender discussion with the trill, right? Because that is one of the most interesting things, I think, that we can talk about when we talk about the trill in general, right? There is no issue with a, a symbiont going from from host to host regardless of gender it doesn't seem that the trill homeworld whoever makes these decisions cares about that at all and as far as we can tell and i think this is confirmed by memory alpha is that the the symbiont itself is actually genderless so the gender of the joined being is determined by that of the host it really does kind of make you wonder though um could you look at this society in, in a way and ask, is gender necessary or is gender just this arbitrary construct that they've kind of got going on here? Considering you can have uh, the same personality sticking around in your body for multiple, uh, in multiple bodies for multiple lifetimes. What if it goes onto a male body and it's like, no, nah, still feel pretty female. I mean, there's a lot to think about there. Yeah. So, I mean, Terry Farrell said uh, at the time, I believe that this is on the season four uh, DVD special features, 
that I like the idea of sending people a bigger message than they're used to seeing on TV, something that makes them think and gives them something to talk about. I think the show is so appropriate for Dax, more appropriate than for any other character on television. That's because Dax has always had this duality. She has been a man and a woman several times. Any entity that has that duality is going to have some controversy surrounding it, even though the story is not about a gay relationship. Which is definitely true. There's a potential with the character of Dax to, there you can play it and say straight up, yes, this is a gay relationship, or you can play it in kind of a safer tone and say, no, but they were male and female when they knew each other. Wink. Not really. Well, I think that that's kind of at least the out that the Star Trek writers had for for television was to say, well, they were husband and wife in their previous lifetime together. So I think it makes it perhaps feel a little bit less controversial because you can always rely back on that, which I think is almost unfortunate. I, you know, I would have liked them to go all the way with this idea, but it was 1993, 1994 at the time. So it's still kind of a shame though, that they had to sell this idea so much, even though it's a very sweet, it's a very complicated, it's very interesting. It's a story you want to see, but the gay aspect alone of it was what added the level of complication to selling the idea. Yeah, I don't think that it was that much of a cop-out, especially not compared to something like The Outcast, where you have, you know, casting all women as this androgynous species and then end up having Riker basically just kissing a woman. And I feel like this was able to make a statement without making a statement. And uh, we had a, co- a comment from Moira on Facebook who said, only a fan who was committed to willful ignorance missed or denied that this episode was about gay rights. In retrospect, the writers did some twisty things to what we knew about the trill in order to get their point across. But at the time, this was a big Valentine to Star Trek's gay fans. Not saying it's perfect. No, definitely not. But it is it is a huge improvement on something like The Outcast, where you say where they cast a woman and pretend like they're being progressive. Uh-huh. Whereas here, I mean, they really were. It is a sweet love story, and that's not something we get very often even today. Nope. And how much does that say? That it's been uh, what, 13 years since this episode aired? More more than that, yeah. And, um, and it, this is still a pretty good benchmark as far as Star Trek goes for gay representation. Well, up until recently. <laughs> I still I would still say that this is maybe a more significant I don't know. I mean, yeah, okay, so beyond also as well um is pretty significant, but given that this was what did we say 96? 95. 95. So more than 10 years earlier. Um I still think it's pretty cool and uh it uh when I mentioned sorry that the reception was fraught, what I was referring to was that apparently it had a similar response to when Plato's stepchildren had this interracial kiss that there were actually affiliates that rejected it from their schedule. And there was also sort of an attempt by uh, apparently Entertainment Tonight wanted to like come film the kiss on set and Avery Brooks refused basically saying like, we don't want this to be like the sensationalized lesbian kiss. Like, let's watch two hot women kissing. We want it to be a love story that's sensitively done. I still feel like that's how it was marketed, though. Oh, yeah. If you watch the trailer. Absolutely. absolutely. 
But I think we could probably dive a little bit more into this whole like trill society thing. And I was wondering if Lisa, if you had any thoughts on, I guess, like if we imagine what life on planet trill is like based on this episode, how do you think that the trill define their own sexuality? I think at least what we get from Rejoined is that I don't think sexuality, as far as, you know, gay or lesbian or gender, matters as much in Troll society, because no one seems to care that Jadzia is a female with another female. The issue is entirely the relationship between their symbionts in a prior lifetime. And so... You know, I'd hope to think that Trill Society has moved beyond those issues. But then, I know in later episodes, and probably in episodes before this, Jadzia will often talk about, oh, I've been a man once, and I've been a woman, and talking about, you know, planning for a wedding in very stereotypical terms as far as planning a wedding from a man's perspective and from a female's perspective. So, you know, they're... They seem to have moved beyond an issue of gender, but then for a cheap line, I think the writers will sometimes throw in those stereotypical concepts. Yeah, for sure. We had a comment from Heather via Twitter, and she was saying after returning from Star Trek Las Vegas, where Dax's sexuality was described by Terry Farrell as pansexual, rejoined means even more. Although the hetero origins of Tarias, so the Dax former host, and Nalani, who is Khan's former host, uh, it, although their origins of the relationship is mentioned, the relationship between Jedzia and Lonara is never questioned. Jedzia and Lonara's genders don't stand in the way of their love. Sad the relationship wasn't explored, but thankful Star Trek tried. So I just, I want to throw that in there because um, she mentions that Terry Farrell at Star Trek Las Vegas described Dax's sexuality today well, I guess like, so today, 2016, as she would consider her pansexual, which is having attraction to people regardless of their gender expression or gender identity. Yeah, and I could see that as being the norm, if you can even use that word, in a trill society. It certainly seems like it. Like, you would feel like people wouldn't be so freaked out about the possibility if they were so, of uh, the possibility of them reassociating if they were convinced they wouldn't get together because they're women now. Right, right. Well, and I wonder if that's a difference between joined trills versus not joined trills. If huh. I remember correctly, it, the number of joined trills, because the number of symbionts that are available, is a very small percentage mm -hmm. of trill society. So I wonder what a non-joined trill, their gender identity and their gender issues, how that relates. Yeah, and I don't know that we really ever get to see that other than maybe people in relationships in Esri's family, but we really don't ever meet, like, Dax's parents. Or, sorry, Jadzia Dax's parents. And we don't know if the other two Trill on the mission are joined or not, I don't think. Right. No. But what's nice about this episode, too, it's not just with the Trill. It's you've got the other characters on the station talking about this relationship between Jadzia and Lenara, and nobody mentions anything about their genders. It's just a discussion of, well, if they want to be together, why can't they be together? And the the issue is this reassociation law. But we've seen that in the past with, with Jedzia talking to Pell, right? Uh, just she realizes that Pell is in love with Quark before she realizes that Pell is a woman. And that's not a big deal to her. 
whether whether Pell the man is attracted to Quark or Pell the woman is attracted to Quark. Doesn't matter. And I think that is something that DS9 in particular tends to do really well with this sort of thing, is that none of the characters even give it a second thought. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's fantastic to see it just played as a complete non-issue. Oh yeah, well it's moved on so much from what they did in TNG with Crusher and when the Trill was originally introduced in The Host, where gender was a very big deal. Well, this is a little headcanony for me, <laughs> but the line that Crusher has at the end of The Host is not, I can't be with a woman, right? It's, I can't handle the constant change. And it might be a bit of a cop-out, but I like to believe the words that were said in that line. And that it's not, I'm super afraid to be with a woman, I'm freaked out by it, but it really is, like, I don't know if I can deal with your totally different culture. Which is still an excuse, but it, it makes me a little less sad about <laughs> the representation in TNG. I, I don't think, like, the issue, you know, there's not an issue with Crusher, per se. The issue that I had with the host is this, like, perhaps it's a human failing, and maybe, and, like, perhaps someday our ability to love won't be so limited, and maybe she yeah. is talking about just, like, the change, but I feel like it's sort of implied that she's also saying that humans have an inability to like switch between loving people in different genders and that that's not really accurate but but i mean again influenced by the time and at the time i still think they thought they were doing something edgy but i think rejoined is is a more progressive step absolutely i totally agree but let's get into this reassociation law so yeah. because that make a lot of sense because nobody on the station or on Deep Space Nine cares about the gender of these two people, there has to be some sort of conflict, right? The conflict is that it is a trill taboo, not technically law, but that doesn't make sense because they'll exile you. Um, you can so be exiled based on something that makes people mildly uncomfortable. Right. Real um, society, go figure. That two symbionts in new hosts cannot pick up an old relationship. Except for Dax being, you know, best friends with Cisco, apparently. There's actually a lot of that, right? Because Odana still wants to be with Crusher, and Ezri is on the station with Worf, so maybe it's just Trill and Trill. It's that only if it's with a joined symbiont that you used to have this, it's like, it's very weird and convoluted and it doesn't carry through. And it also doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the reason that is given in this episode is that the whole point of the joining is for the symbiont to have new experiences. But when a symbiont is with a new host, those experience would be experiences would be inherently different anyway, even if the same other symbiont is there because that symbiont is also in another host. I'm just saying the same words over and over again. <laughs> so, yeah, I wonder about who the taboo keepers of Trill are. So, I mean, I think there's a couple things that you guys raised. I mean, one is the what's behind this whole thing. And at least Michael Piller said that he felt there would have to have a taboo in order to avoid an aristocracy of the joined. That's from Renee Echevarria said that Michael Piller said he thought that Trills would have to have a taboo in order to avoid an aristocracy of the joined because they'd only want to hang out with each other and their old friends from 500 years ago and it would become a really screwed up society because there's so few of them that are joined. And I think that's a, I, I think it's a fair point that that 
could be a problem, but I'm not sure why a taboo was formed to prevent that. Um, but also, I think that we, we kind of, we have to acknowledge, but then just kind of set aside the continuity and canon issues, because it definitely disrupts the canon from the host, uh, that, you know, the Odan keeps coming back to Crusher. And it also later, like you pointed out, is, uh, disrupted by Esri. We had a, a comment from, uh, Tara on Facebook who said, I agree that the writers used the previous heterosexual relationship to temper this one. However, they sort of retroactively raised the possibility that there was more to it than that. When Ezri and Worf are drawn to each other, they think it's because of the pull of the previous relationship. But once it's implied they've had sex, they're pretty much eh about the whole thing. It's certainly not a perfect depiction, but it paints it more as the draw to someone can come from a previous life, but the continuing desire comes from the current life. So I thought that was cool. And I think that's reinforced in the scenes where... Uh, Dax and Lenar are talking about science and how, you know, we actually have more in common than Tarias and Nalani did. And those those scenes, I think, show that it's about more than just Dax, Dax and Khan. Yeah, agreed. I thought it was interesting that they made a, a very strong point of them being closer than their former hosts ever were. Yeah, that just makes the whole thing so much sadder, though, at the end. Uh, it's heartbreaking. If only they were meeting for the first time now. Well, I've often heard the comment that the relationship is exclusively driven by the symbionts in this episode. I have heard that on several different places where people are saying, oh, it's just the Dax and the Khan symbiont, and it's not Jadzia and Lenara. And I think what you guys are pointing out and what I always see when I watch it is that it really is Jadzia and Lenara. I think there's a pull from these prior lives, but it's clearly so much more than that the previous relation is the base but the two of them they got uh, the spice <laughs> <laughs> i think that's part of the rewrite from tng too right because we the impression we get from the host is that the symbiont personality sort of takes over the personality of the host but in ds9 it's even been stated that is it is much more of a joining that having the symbiont changes the host, but having, but, but it's not just the symbiont's personality either. Right. And that's part of Ezri's struggle. Yeah. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but you know, so much of her story is, is trying to figure out who she is in relationship to the symbiont and all of the former hosts. Now I really do want to see them run into a society, though, where, like, there's an entire group of people who only ever interact with other people in that group. And so, then I remembered, I live in America. <laughs> already a thing. Yeah. Uh, so they have this taboo. They're basically able to exile you. So this implies that there's, like, a government system backing this up if they're able to prevent you from returning to trill there must be like an immigration authority or something that's preventing these exiled trills from returning so that like that sets up a a huge issue and it makes you kind of wonder whether you know why were the trill even granted federation membership if they have this taboo given that we see other situations where planets that have human rights issues are urged to change things before reallowing people. But I mean, maybe it didn't come up that you're going to be preventing people who love each other from loving who they love. 
Maybe it was one of those things where they were just kind of like, oh, they've got this big social problem, but they live for like ever. And that's just really cool. Or like they have a strategic dilithium reserve or something. (laughs) Or they just didn't know about it. Well, yeah. Do we know when Trill became a member of the Federation? Because, I mean, in TNG and the host, Starfleet didn't know that Trill were a joined species. So, I mean, if Trill became a member of the Federation before that, then they became a member of the Federation without the Federation knowing exactly what was going on, which raises all sorts of questions about Federation membership. But <laughs> I have no idea. I'm looking it up, but I'm not seeing anything. Yeah, everybody seems to have the same question. God, this episode raises so many questions. <laughs> Also, when did they go from a bumpy-headed alien to a pockmarked alien? When Terry Farrell was too pretty to put bumps on her head. <laughs> when, we, when we needed the main character to be a woman. That's when. Yes, that is when. <laughs> well, that's convenient, isn't it? <laughs> that, that is the real reason. Yeah, for uh. anyone who is not familiar, they, they did like a makeup test with Terry Farrell with the bumps on her head. And they were like, whoa, she's too pretty for this. And then they came up with the spots that they stole from Famke Jansen in uh, The Perfect Mate. Yeah. Yeah. But like this, this makes me, I want to talk a bit about Cisco's response to this situation because I think it's interesting. And I, I know that when I first saw it, it surprised me a little bit. Um, and this is a mix of, it's definitely like fully a friend response. It's not a Starfleet response, but I, I just kind of want to segue into that if people are cool. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on how Cisco responds to the situation? I think it's interesting that he, at the very beginning of the episode, Cisco knows enough about this when nobody else does mm-hmm. uh, to, to call Dex in and, and let her know. And I, th- ah. Am I wrong? I read that as as nice. Like like I don't know. If it was me, I would be slightly I would be I would feel slightly condescended to, but like it would depend on the relationship and she certainly seems to respond to it as a kind gesture. He calls her and he's basically like, "Lenara Khan's coming to the station. Why don't you take some leave so that you're not put in this awkward situation?" And she says, "No, I'll be fine, but thanks." So she like thanks him for giving her the opportunity. I don't think she would say that if she didn't feel it was kind. Yeah, it really does feel just like Cisco looking out for her. I think it's when we get to that second interaction between them, I think it's after the kiss between uh, Lenara and Jadzia that Cisco starts to come off as very paternalistic and, I don't know, controlling mm-hmm. in a way that almost makes me uncomfortable. I know he has good intentions and ultimately says... Oh, I'll support you, whatever you do. But the way he goes about it feels, I don't know, it feels icky to me almost. It does kind of feel like he's feeling like he has a horse in this race in the sense that um, he got a second chance with Dax once and when he lost his friend and then had his friend kind of essentially come back from the dead. And he knows that if Dax makes this decision to, you know, be with the woman she loves that chance is not gonna happen a second time and there will be a point where cisco genuinely has to say goodbye for good i also felt a little bit uncomfortable with it in that i was surprised to see cisco's first reaction be like no don't do it he kind of 
he he says all the reasons why she shouldn't do it and and uses uh the words of Jadzia and Curzon to rationalize why this is a bad idea and why the commitment to the symbiote has to be paramount but then he then he kind of throws like I get that this is really difficult for you but it it doesn't seem like he really is trying to understand how she feels at the beginning. And it, it feels like you're right in a way that's a little bit paternalistic. And if I was her and then had this person who was in a position of power, who was best friends with Curzon, say these things and be like, but I'll back you all the way, whatever decision you make. I don't know if I would 100% believe it. 100% all the way, but conditionally. Yeah. I don't know. I think it would have been nice to maybe see him like supporting her closer to the end. I'm not sure how that would have worked. Maybe it would have not worked well, but have him or and also I kind of wish he would have questioned the taboo at any point. Like the whole time he's just like, no, you you guys have this taboo and you have to go with it because the symbiote's more important. And no one ever kind of suggests the idea that maybe if we challenge the taboo, other people might challenge the taboo and we could like be the impetus for a greater societal change. Yeah. Even in the outcast, we kind of get that call to change at the end with this. It's just kind of like, eh, that's how it is. I still can't wrap my head around this taboo and the, like the logistics of it, which I know is not the point, but if, the, okay, how do I phrase this? If the population of symbionts is really that small, that everything in this society is done to protect the symbiont. Apparently it's three 300 symbionts. That's ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so 300. It really is that small, such a small percentage. <laughs> everything is done to protect these symbionts. And yet there is a... They're the 1%. Oh my God. <laughs> there is always... So it seems, at least in our experience, this pull towards people, this, this symbiont new in a, with a past host. Why create this taboo? That means that literally all of them are at risk to never being joined again. Again, this episode just raises so many damn questions. So uh, Grace and I's friend, Oren, who we all know from when he uh, used to co-host All Things Trek, Oren was thinking about how this taboo would have to be propped up by a system on Trill, uh, some kind of official system to enforce the taboo, and made uh, an RPG one-shot where you're a Federation away team that's called to rescue a stolen symbiont. Uh, and then you find out that the Trill have these sort of rehabilitation symbiont pools where the symbionts from the, the hosts who attempted reassociation are sent to like be sort of wiped of those memories so that they can be put in new hosts. So just one way that it's been imagined that things might go on trail, I guess, sort of <laughs> extending the metaphor to to sort of talk about like conversion therapy allegory. Oh, that wacky fun Oren guy. Yeah. <laughs> but Ruth on Facebook says uh, for about this episode, I recognize it of being of its time. Remember back then when it was a big deal that Ellen came out on her sitcom? I sure do. And that was a huge deal that my whole community watched together. She got to be a theoretical lesbian, though. No sex on primetime. I think the Trill taboo is stupid, 
but necessary. I wish it could have been something else, but Trek was a syndicated show in many markets, and for the time and place, it's pretty good they did this. In a more modern reading, this is not just about same-sex taboos in our society, it's about a lot more, and my reading of DS9 and Dax and gender fluidity and fluidity of attraction comes a good part from this episode. Mostly throwing that in for the whole stupid but necessary about the taboo, yeah. which is kind of what I feel like. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. They, It also, I forgot to mention, it goes against uh, Blood Oath, where she ends up like doing Curzon's Blood Oath with the Klingons. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and she gets tried for Curzon's crimes at some point. Mm-hmm. There's just lots of uh, inconsistencies. Yeah. But I think that ultimately the effect is worth it. Oh yeah, it definitely gets the job done story-wise. Yeah, I think the taboo is, I mean, like you guys have pointed out, pretty much ridiculous, but it allows us to have this story without making it a, ooh, they're lesbian story, which I think makes their relationship mean more. Mm-hmm. Which, honest to God, when I first heard that that was the plot of this episode the first time I watched it, I was so worried that was what it was going to be. And I was actually pretty pleasantly surprised. Because, honest to God, who hasn't seen something they thought was going to be a good piece of representation turn into lured, ooh, look at the gays. Yeah, and that was, I guess, like not that long before the like Will and Grace with Madonna and uh there was the like Britney Spears kiss and all but it was very much a salacious look at two sexy women kissing kind of situation and I don't I feel like the scene was pretty sensitively done and I think Avery Brooks as the director deserves some credit for it I know that Susanna Thompson who played Khan said that it was my first time working on Star Trek where a director wanted me to come in prior to the first day you start shooting. And so he got Terry and I together. I felt very safe with him. And being an actor, he understood all the technical ramifications that you're sort of distracted with on any given day. But he also knew that this episode was going to be a little controversial because there was a same-sex kiss. He was so good at keeping us safe and protected, but also giving us such a great space to be brave. A great space to be brave. Isn't that just a great term? (laughs) Well, I think that reflects that Avery Brooks was probably the right choice to direct this episode. I don't know much about Avery, but I kind of get the impression that he understood what he was doing with this episode and wanted to make it matter. And so him trying to make Susanna and Terry comfortable with each other and bringing their insecurities to to the forefront so that they could have this episode happen, I think, really speaks highly to Avery Brooks as a director. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting, too, that they definitely knew what they were doing. And sort of, we've talked about a little bit how how Star Trek pushed boundaries and then sort of backed off of them for a little while. And in, in that memo that was sent to, to Rick Berman about this decision by all of the writers, it was quoted as from Ira, Ron, Renee, and Robert. They said... We think it's an important story, and we very much want to do it. Star Trek has prided itself on having TV's first interracial kiss for almost 30 years now. It was controversial at the time, and it took some boldness to do it, but now we look back on it with a certain amount of pride. If we do this story, and we do it well, we will one day look back on this story with an even greater sense of pride. And of course, we all know that was the first interracial kiss on American TV. Yeah, definitely. And I I do think that... It has held up better than some of the other attempts, like Cogenitor, because I think it does portray a genuine relationship and a genuine, a genuine feeling love story. And 
something that people can relate to because of their looks and their, the, you know, the catches in their voice and things like that. It's really, um, it's really well acted. And I think the scenes between Dax and Con are very well written, even though the whole like taboo and some of the sciencey stuff going around isn't necessarily the best. What also feels really accurate to me are the people who are there who don't want this relationship to happen, Mm -hmm. who have such an interest in it and keep watching and sneaking around and won't take their eyes off of it or talking about it. Like, they need to have some control over these other people's relationship. I love so much that scene when they first meet up at the party, because who hasn't realized they're at they're about to run into an ex and they're like, and you're like, I'm, I'm okay with it. But everyone around you is like, Ooh, it's going to go down. Nope. Totally. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I was wondering about was because rewatching it again, I was like, were they trying to say something with Dax and Bashir doing magic tricks? Was that supposed to be connected in some way? Or was that just kind of a comic relief thing? I think it was a very poorly done exposition for reminding us that Jadzia has been joined before and that she keeps certain aspects of each of the individuals who the Dax symbiont has been joined before. Yeah, I, I that's how I read it as well. Although I would have liked to see Quark get to take more stabs at guessing how magic tricks work. <laughs> I could do a whole episode of that. Yeah, like have him do his own Mythbusters show. That's right. The Worf quote in the party is a really, you know, classic Worf humor <laughs> moment where he talks what about, Klingons like, what did Klingons about? dream about? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Things that would chill your spine. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, Bashir is a lot more obnoxious earlier in Deep Space Nine towards Dax, and by this, he's actually even kind of... He's a pretty good friend in this yeah. episode. He deserves an award for being the patron saint of third wheels everywhere. (laughs) Let's hear it for the boy. (laughs) You know, as great as Bashir is in this episode, I still always find myself disappointed by the lack of Kira in the episode. I know. She's only really there for that one scene of exposition, isn't she? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that I went to the Dallas convention and Terry Farrell was there and she talked about always being disappointed that Jadzia and Kira didn't have a deeper relationship than what they had. You know, they were always just talking about boys and gossiping as opposed to recognizing that Kira's a terrorist and Dax is an old man. And they could have had so much more in their relationship. And I think that this is one of those episodes where I think Kira, you know, Kira should have been the one saying, no, this is, this is crap. This taboo is crap. You know, you, you know, you guys love each other. And I, I kind of wish it would have gone the other way. And I think Kira is the one who we should have seen that with as the person who Jadzia is really could be the closest to on the station. It would be awesome if we had got to see Jedzia talking to Kira and Sisko at the same time. And Sisko was like, but Curzon said this and you said this and I need to remind you of your own words. And Kira's like, that's all crap. Like what, what matters is how you feel now and don't, why do you care what other people think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have been, I don't know. I would have loved that. <laughs> Definitely. The interesting part about that discussion with Sisko is that he's clearly speaking to Jedzia. Right. And not necessarily Dax, because he keeps saying your symbiont won't blah, 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 blah. But she is the symbiont as much as she is Jedzia. Right. And if she has made this decision where she is willing to risk never being joined again, 
part of that decision is Dax's. That's it's true. It's not just like a 20-something deciding that she wants to throw caution to the wind for this relationship. This is also her hundreds of years old symbiont, you know? <laughs> deciding to throw caution to the wind. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, Lenara Khan sort of insinuates that it's Curzon who's making this rash decision to want to break the rules. So in that case, it's also partly Curzon, who's Cisco's best friend, making that as well. So it, it's part of Dax, but it's also part of Curzon and part of Jadzia. Also, can I be the first one to make a Wrath of Khan joke? <laughs> a done. <laughs> how do you folks feel about the ending other th- I mean it's obviously sad but how do you feel about Lenara's decision and whether it's satisfactory or what you'd like to have seen going forward in terms of exploring this further or as either the reassociation taboo or just Jadzia's relationships well they at least put enough stock into the taboo and of establishing Lenora Khan as her own character to be like She's got her own life. She's she's allowed to make her own decisions. She'll do what she will. And you, um, even if you're not happy with her decision at the end, you at least respect it. She's also the one, I think, with more to lose. Uh, oh, because yeah. it's not just never being joined again, but she works for the Trill government in the sciences. And she's on the verge of the big breakthrough with this artificial wormhole. Her life is very much centered around Trill. Yeah. Well, and I think this makes the allegory to modern-day LGBTQ issues probably even stronger that she does make this decision in that when you have all these societal pressures regarding who you should love and who you should be with and the decisions that you should make, sometimes it's a really hard decision. And while we have Jadzia, who has a little Curzon in her and is willing to buck tradition, Lenara's more traditional, and it's hard for her, and I don't think anybody can doubt her sincerity and her love for Jadzia, but she ultimately gives into society, and that's painful and heartbreaking, but I think it makes it more real. I mean, nobody's personal relationship should ever affect whether they can be hired or keep their job or get health care coverage, but in too many cases, that is the case even today. Exactly. It's a very good reminder of the fact that it's not always as simple as just saying, follow your heart, do what you want. It's bigger than that. And your family relationships, that there are still, you know, people who are keeping their identity secret because of uh, the risk of family rejection and people who are rejected and disowned by their families for just being who they are and loving who they want to love. This episode's a great example of a of a fantastic concept that is very rooted in a harsh reality, which really says a lot about what Star Trek is able to do. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, for as ridiculous as the taboo is, when we look at it with anything remotely resembling a critical eye, that's, you know, kind of like so many of the taboos we have regarding these issues in today's society. As you look at them and you're like, seriously, that's that's going to be the sword you're going to fall on? Yeah, so, you know, it's the power of Star Trek. It's a beautiful thing. Are we all just totally bummed out now? <laughs> I kind of am, yeah. 
Well, if, if you're feeling too bummed out, just remember that if we were to ask Jad Z about this, she'd just say, this is all about me dealing with issues. <laughs> my wife. <laughs> Which is what me and my roommates were doing all the way through the rewatch of this. Because we're adults. Well, and that it's showing us a future where none of this stuff matters. Except for the trills. And right. in that case, it's not about gender. <laughs> Ah, uh, trills. Oh. <laughs> Thought you were so cool with your spots and your symbiotic relationships and your sciencing, but no. <laughs> I guess the universe really is greener on the other side. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, so I mean, it's important Star Trek, and I'm I'm sure that, you know, watching something like Let That Be Your Last Battlefield it, at the time that it aired, talking about that could have been really depressing too. Or me even, you know, talking about racism today. But, uh, like, <laughs> past tense. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, exactly. And it's good that Star Trek went there. I think this is the best one they've done. Yeah, I would agree. Oh, hands down. And I know I hope Brian Fuller takes a page out of this book and really gives us something in the new series that lets us move forward with this, you know, these sorts of issues. And I think, you know, he's the right choice for that. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. So is there anything else about this episode we haven't touched on that anyone would like to touch on? Well, uh, I like the on earrings are fantastic. <laughs> right? I want yes. those. <laughs> and they're clip-on? What? It's <laughs> the best. Totally. Uh, there's also a pretty great quote in the Star Trek Deep Space Nine companion that it, it wasn't really attributed, but it said there's a story regarding the man, uh, regarding a man complaining about his kids seeing the kiss. It was a production assistant who took the call. After hearing the man's complaint, the PA asked if the man would have been okay with his kids seeing one woman shoot the other. When the man said he would be okay with that, the PA said, you should reconsider who's messing up your kids. <laughs> Burn. So, don't know if it actually happened, but it's, and certainly, I mean, this is another issue that, like, ongoing in Hollywood today, the fact that you're going to see more censorship of same-sex sex and physical attraction than you are going to see of violence. Absolutely. It's pretty bananas. Should totally watch this film is not yet rated if you have not done so and you're interested in these uh, this discussion. It will make you angry. Informed and angry. Yeah. Let's go change things because things could totally be better. Yes. So I think those are all the topics that were on our list. Why don't we go around and do some final thoughts on the episode and we'll start with Lisa. You know, I think we've talked about most of the issues that come out to me in this episode, but I think we've really hit on that this episode for me is what Star Trek is supposed to be all about. It's taking an issue that shouldn't be a big deal. You know, I think it's Deep Space Nines or I think it's this generation of Star Trek. I think it's their Let This Be Your Last Battlefield. It's a powerful allegory for a modern day issue that, you know, if we could all take it to heart, then I think we'd be in a better place. Totally, for sure. Grace? It definitely, again, raised the bar for how we are able to discuss modern day issues and just societal issues in Star Trek. And I really would like to hold this up to a lot of people who say Star Trek isn't supposed to be about introspection. It's just supposed to be about, you know, space fantasy and gunfights and junk. No, look at this. In short, I give it 8 out of 10 uh, 
boss ass Klingon earrings. <laughs> oh, right. We have to rate it. We don't have to, but but we can if we want. If you if you feel the need to, yeah. <laughs> I will give this eight and a half out of ten artificial wormholes. <laughs> Ooh. And just say that it's, I think, a really successful example of a, a Trek message episode. I think that it still has a relevant message today. And even if we were past that, which would be awesome, but um, the acting would still hold it up. And so I like it. Could have been more Kira. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, I think it holds up really, really well. I think this is also one of the episodes that makes the trill so fascinating and why we are prompted to ask so many questions about them. Uh, but it's just a really fantastic episode. However, I do want to finish my final thought with by quoting a tweet from TrekCore, which is, no, Star Trek didn't already cover the gay thing just because Jadzia kissed a lady back in 95. Yeah. Doesn't uh, mean it's meaning, done. True that. No. Yeah. But as Lisa was saying, we want more. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And I think that does it for today. Lisa, where can everybody find you on the interwebs? Uh, well, in addition to my blog, which is, again, the prolific trek.wordpress.com, I am on the Twitters at at Trekkie underscore 47. And that's about it. Grace? You can find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJank with a K at the end. Or you can look in my forays into Star Trek tumbling on Raceheart Star Trek at Tumblr. I'm really sad that it's not like gymnastics set to Star Trek music. Because <laughs> that's what I picture when I see Star Trek tumbling. <laughs> like... <laughs> well, maybe one of us should try. <laughs> Jara, what about you? You can find me at trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com or on Twitter at Jara Penguin. That's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin. Awesome. And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R or over at AnomalyPodcast.com. And you can reach the entire crew, if you'd like, by emailing crew at womenatwarp.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Women at Warp or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash, you guessed it, Women at Warp. Thanks so much for joining us. Time. I've never let my past lives interfere with my job. Is a relative thing. You know that woman? I know her. She used to be my wife. Taboos. You're Jadzia Dax, and you have a responsibility as a joined trill. Can have serious consequences. I'm really glad you're here. But how close... I love her, Benjamin. ...is too close on the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine.